0: In association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project, welcome to Rob Kane's Ancient Rome Refocused. History for the Brave
1: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11. On today's show, we will be interviewing James A. Bretney. Who is in Hollywood, California? Some people dream of Rome. Some people try to make their dreams come alive. And James has done this by producing a proposal for a TV pilot. But what I think is more interesting about him is that he is living his own adventure by working in the entertainment business. Some of the obstacles he faces are not too much different than what ancient actors had to face. We will interview James A. Bretney later in the show. This episode is devoted to the subject of acting today and in the ancient world. We have several interviews with actors and actresses currently in the business. Also, we have Professor Art Lynch, a national board director for the Screen Actors Guild, who will provide us with some context of show business today with comparisons to ancient times. What's more... He will make an appeal to a room filled with ancient actors from Rome and Greece on why they should join the Screen Actors Guild. Yes, I know there was no film in ancient times, but imagination gives us a lot of leeway. We also have a call-in from Robert W. M. Greaves, who has a fascinating website called matters-arising.org blogspot.com I'll say that again matters-arising.blogspot.com he gets the award for the most distant call-in are you ready Jakarta Indonesia
2: uh, hello Mr. Kane this is Robert Greaves calling um, I took um episode nine of, the, of your podcast a um, bit behind as usual but uh, but I thought I'd uh, just turn you up with a few comments. I much enjoyed your recreation of um, Alaric's thought processes after the sack of Rome, but I was just wondering whether perhaps he would have gone for the title Augustus rather than Caesar. You know, Augustus at that time being sort of the title for the top emperor, and um, Caesar for the assistant emperors, who would be sort of next in line for the, for the top job. I was also uh, interested to hear what your uh, archaeologist friend said about the uh, about um, the eagle. I, I saw the film uh, and enjoyed it. it. Apparently, well, as you may know, it was uh, it was uh, based on a book by Rosemary Sutcliff, the uh, the Eagle of the Ninth, which was published in about nineteen fifty two. It was it was a novel for. Written main, mainly, I think, for young boys about ten or eleven years of age, but it's a great book. I, I read it at that age and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, really good. I read it. Read it again recently. Um, she's got a marvelous way of um, of uh, showing landscape, um, which really came across in the film as well. I think um, it, it is a wonderful. It is a wonderful. Uh, book to read, but I, I, can't, I can't recommend it enough to your listeners. Yeah, so Eagle of the Ninth, Rosemary Cliff. yeah, a really good book. Um, at the time it was written, um, nobody really knew about the um, later history of the Ninth Legion, so she, she was quite within um, the knowledge of uh, people at the time in the early 50s. And um, um, an eagle, or what was thought to be an eagle, was dug up in, on an archaeological site in Chester, which, uh, which I've been to. It's a wonderful site uh, to go to. And I've actually seen the eagle of the ninth in the Reading Museum. That's uh, Reading Dutch in England, of course. So, yeah, it, she, it really was based on what people, people knew at the time she was writing. Um, also, uh, much enjoyed seeing the Cavafy poem on your blog, on the blog. My favourite Cavafy po- poem, also um, relevant, to, especially to the theme of the uh, of Alaric and everything, is "Waiting for the Barbarians." Do read it if you can find it. It's on it's on the uh, it's on the web, uh, Cavafy.com. Hope you enjoy. it. Okay, bye. What are we waiting for?
3: Assembled in the forum The barbarians are to arrive today Why such inaction in the Senate? Why do the senators sit and pass no laws? Because the barbarians are to arrive today What laws? Can the Senators pass anymore? When the barbarians come, they will make the laws. Why did our Emperor wake up so early and sits at the greatest gate of a city, on the throne, solemn, wearing the crown? Because the barbarians are to arrive today and the Emperor waits to receive their chief. Indeed, he has prepared to give him a scroll. Therein, he inscribed many titles and names of honor. Why have our two consuls and the Praetors come out today in the red embroidered togas? Why do they wear amethyst-studded bracelets? And rings with brilliant glittering emeralds. Why are they carry costly canes today, wonderfully carved with silver and gold? Because the barbarians are to arrive today, and such things dazzle the barbarians. Why don't the worthy orators come as always to make their speeches, to have their say? Because the barbarians are to arrive today and they get bored with eloquence and orations. Why all of a sudden this unrest and confusion how solemn the faces have become. Why are the streets and squares clearing quickly and all return to their homes so deep in thought? Because night is here but the barbarians have not come. And some people arrived from the borders said that there are no longer any barbarians. And now, what shall become of us without any barbarians? Those people were some kind of solution.
1: That was the poem by Constantine Cavafi called Waiting for the Barbarians. I thought you might like to hear it. It was. Read by Caterina Wilhelmina, and quite well, I might add. If you want to hear it again, go on YouTube and look her up. Uh, She does a wonderful rendition of this poem. One night, I dreamed of an owl. I couldn't get back to sleep, so I got up and I blogged about it on my site, Ancient Rome Refocused. I have always associated the owl with Wisdom, kind of connecting it with Athena. But to my surprise, I got a variety of reactions. One is an email that I got from James A. Bretney, who we are going to talk with on the show today, who warned me that the owl is associated with death in the Filipino culture. But I also got a telephone call from Tom, who lives in Arkansas.
4: My name is Tom, and I'm a listener in western Arkansas and um, right on the edge of eastern Oklahoma, which was Indian territory at one time. And after reading the uh, uh, article online uh, on your blog entry, uh, 3 a.m., random thoughts, uh, dreamed of an owl, it struck me that uh, in Native American cultures, uh, specifically the Cherokee, the owl was uh, the symbol of death, which um, is probably appropriate uh, for a hunter, like the owl is, but uh, I just thought you might find that interesting uh, that uh, the Cherokees have a uh, have an opinion uh, of that particular uh, bird and um, in its uh, symbolic meaning. Uh, thanks for all you do. Really enjoy the podcast and the blog, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks.
1: The title of this podcast is Who is Roscius, Archibald Leach, and James A. Bretney? Play called Coming Home by Rodon Canos of Rome. Prologue They prepare for the theater. years, I wandered the deserts and chased ghosts through mountain passes in the name of the Republic. I have returned with a dark tan and a smell that reeks of sand, leather, and the ass of a horse. Life in the Roman army has hardened me. Returning to this place has been strained. Arriving unannounced is like dropping a rock into a pool. There are bound to be ripples. To have chairs to sit upon instead of hard rock is a luxury. To have a bed, well, just that has made me feel like a god. To have a wife, a wife. Now there is the difficult part. A chair does not look back at you with reproach. You sit on it, and it welcomes your sorry ass, no matter how long you have been gone. And you in the chair are content. My dog, though he barked in anger at me for being away so long, at least welcomed me an hour later with a tongue kiss on my big toe all is forgiven but the wife a wife does not welcome the returning veteran with total compliance a wife looks at you and accuses you of wild affairs of finding women hiding behind every rock and accepting invitations to their huts heavy with the smell of cinnamon when in truth All you ever got to kiss was a lizard that wandered into your mouth while you tried to sleep. And those of you that have wondered what a lizard tastes like, a good comparison would be chicken with dirty feet. So when a soldier returns home after six years of absence, you do what you can to make the wife happy. Such as, take a bath, till you stink like a Carthaginian whore that bathes in African flower petals, and though you stink of perfume, take her to the theater to see her favorite actor. His name is Roskis. I sit by the fountain waiting for her to get ready. Tonight, I am in full toga, and I have sent for a litter to carry us both to the theater. Two slaves stand outside, waiting for it to arrive. I am told Scythians make the best litter-bearers, and I was careful to get the best, since some Rodinian slaves dropped me onto the pavement. I have learned my lesson. Our atrium echoes with running water, and a bird has made its way inside and flits back and forth, searching for an escape to the outside. He does not know where the exit is located. I know how you feel, little bird, I say to the sparrow. We have been married twenty years, but with all the times the army took me away, she and I were in each other's company for only maybe Five at the most. I could tell you the location of a small town that has the best wine within four hundred miles of the Syrian mountains better than I could tell you my wife's favorite vintage. My wife and I are strangers.
0: To have him back is such a nuisance lords over this house, master of something which barely knew the sight of him. Even the slaves were doubtful of his identity when he stomped through the front door announcing his return. Now, he's trying to make up for his absence by taking me out to the theater. The children ran from him thinking he was a gorgon from the swamp pool down the street. The two sweet buds took one look at him and ran screaming down the hall to the safety of the nursery. Six years he was gone. Six years and he returns without even a letter to announce his coming. Well, I said, about time. You stink like a stable, my Miles Gloriosus. Get out of this clothes. Your uniform looks like a kitchen rag. When is the last time you changed your tunic? Take it off, it stinks. You must have passengers in the folds of your uniform. Little mites from the deserts of Africa will not... Be my house guests. He strips bare in the front hall as the servants gather up his rags to be burned in the back. The Majordomo leads him to his bath, and to my surprise, the film of dirt that I thought covered him is actually the shades of dark his skin is turned from the desert sun. We dress him in a fresh toga. It is huge. He has lost his wealthy fat. He's a walking skeleton of the man he was when he left. He then slept, woke, made an enormous meal of veal and wine, and then continued to sleep for another day. Two days later, he invites me to the theater. A treat, he says. So now I sit in front of the mirror getting ready for our night out. The sled barely moves fast enough. My hair must be right. My dress must be perfect. All things must be correct. My husband has returned, and tonight we are going out to a comedy. I care not for comedy, but there is an actor in the cast that I must see. Where's that lazy girl with my pin? This afternoon, Roscius performs upon the stage. Roscius is handsome. Roscius is a perfect body. Roscius is refined... There's no dark dust of some foreign land upon his skin, no stench of horse manure on Roscius. Now there's a man. I hope Roscius has a monologue tonight. I want to fall into the sound of his voice and habits around me. Enter me like falling into a bed. What a delicious thought. A bed with Roscius. Where is that girl with the pin? When she finally arrives, a little too relaxed for my taste. I pinch her forearm and she yelps. It must be time for the litter to arrive. My husband is waiting.
1: She finally arrives. She wears a white tunic, her shoulders and head covered by a bright red pala. It is a respectable thing to wear, but Bright red. Does she wish for someone to see her at a distance? I notice that she wears the snake bracelet that I sent to her from Greece. A coiled serpent wraps around her left wrist, and it looks up at her with amber eyes. She appears even more beautiful than I remember her. Six years have done nothing to dim her reflection. Well she is beautiful i wonder why did she marry me i am an ugly bulldog with a broken nose oh yes blood and connections i have them the head slave calls out that the litter has arrived we board carefully our shoulders and heads comforted by pillows sprinkled with cinnamon We ride, curtains up. She wants us visible to the street. I deny her nothing. But why does she want to ride with the curtains up? This afternoon, the streets are busy, almost manic. People rush to get their business finished before the carts and cattle wagons of the evening are led in through the gates. The streets of Rome at night, become a racket and a cacophony of noise and shouts as wine, meat, and Greek statues are hauled down the cobblestone streets by ox and donkey bellowing the protests of having to work late. I glance at my wife. She is a beautiful statue. About her neck is a golden with the faces of Helios, the sun god. On top of her head, her hair is piled into a mountain with ropes of hair intersecting in and out like snakes forced to live in a jar. Over the shouts of cattle drivers, vendors... Hawking their wares, children, and drunken louts. I can hear her hum a tune. No, I am
0: mistaken.
1: It is a poem.
0: I had come to a standstill as it happened, paying reverence to the rising dawn, when suddenly Roscius rose on the left. By your leave, heavenly ones, may I be allowed to say this. The sight of a mortal is more beautiful than a god.
1: She berates me while we are on our way, telling me that I know nothing of acting. Well, what would a soldier know about it, anyway? We pretend to be brave. We boast. We lead the attack while being scared that we might show fear. We make bold speeches in front of our troops, our audience, our soldiers. As a leader, I choose the words, writing my own script, all to bring them hope and courage while we run through the unrelenting depths of Hades itself. What do I know of drama, of losing friends, Of heartache when sitting on the edge of a desert and missing your wife so much that you feel your throat ache on the edge of a sob. What do I know of real emotions that actors only portray? We arrive at the play. She sweeps in and joins her friends, the priestesses of the god Roscius. They have their own place to sit. They sit all together, each dressed in red palas, each wearing the sun-disk necklaces, ready to catch the afternoon light in hopes that it catches the eye of Roscius and grants them a smile in their direction. I know these women. I know my wife. They would sing to him if they could. They are goddesses ready to sacrifice their husbands in a heartbeat for one night of his touch. The sound of the drums signals the beginning of the play. Flute players run out onto the stage and entertain the audience by going up and down the scales while men in wood shoes dance.
5: The play begins,
1: a narrator extolling the virtues of the cast. It is to be a little comedy by Plautus. What was the name of the play we were seeing tonight? I cannot remember. It had to do with a pompous soldier. Wait a minute. There, upon the stage, a soldier enters stage right and shouts to the back of the house, Take ye care that the luster of my shield is more bright than the rays of the sun. Oh, by the gods... My wife had called me that name once before. I know what it is now. The name of the play is what she called me. She called me Miles Gloriosus, the braggart soldier. She got her insult from Plautus. That is the name of the play. I start to laugh. My eyes turn to my wife, who sits in the women's section. Again, I see how beautiful she is. This bracket soldier is such a fool. Look at him. He struts across the stage like he owns the world. Is that how she sees me? Why? Why did I ever choose to fight six years so far away when I could have fought at home with such a beauty? <laughs>
0: Roskius is now on the stage. He's playing the part of Palustrine, the slave. He's the clever slave who knows how to make his master jump. He has the key to the wine cellar and knows all the secrets of his master's house. With every line Roskius speaks, the audience roars with laughter. And the women in the red cape sun-disk necklaces filled with delight at the sight of him. I notice my husband. He's sitting several rows away with the men. He laughs heartily. I can see at the performance on the stage. I've never seen him laugh in all those years he was gone. All those years. But I certainly haven't seen him laugh since he's gone back. There's my brown-faced warrior, his white teeth visible in a wide grin. He's laughing so hard that tears are running down his cheeks. His head, oh, now it's thrown back as he laughs. Are his cares gone? Is he able to be lost in revelry, and the joy of the ridiculous? Now I notice he's looking at me. His face seems brighter, not so serious anymore. He's looking at me with such. no, could it be? desire? I cannot turn away. Forget the god upon the stage. Forget Roscius. That Apollo has too many admirers. My eyes go to the god who stares at me now. His eyes look only upon me. No red-haired barbarian girl could keep him in the forest. He did his time, following the eagle, and has left her in her bog to return home. To me. The playwright, Plotus, makes fun of the never-ending struggle between men and women. He holds us in contempt. Men and women are forever building walls, he says, between one another. In his play, the homes of the Greeks are crammed up together. Families share a common wall, their lives separated by rock and mortar. Roscius, as Palestrio, the clever, takes pity upon the girl in the next house. She's held prisoner by her father. He digs a hole through the wall so that his young master can visit the young woman in her captivity. That play is actually about marriage. Men and women bicker, trying to break through the wall that separates them. What did Aristotle say? Oh yes, it went something like this. What difference does it make whether the women rule or the rulers are ruled by women? The result is the same. Everyone's applauding. He's still looking at me.
1: Narration was brought to you by the group Hang Massive. The title of the piece is called Once Again. Copyright 2011. Playing the Hang drums were Danny Cudd and Marcus Johansson. And if you like their music, I suggest you go to their website. It's http: colon back backslash backslash Hang Music dot org. Or you can go to their Facebook page, uh, which is facebook.com hangmassive. Both uh, gentlemen were playing the hang drums, and I think they did it mighty fine. So why don't you check them out and see what other music they have available. They loved jugglers, singers, and dancers. They were entertained by stories of heroes and great adventurers. They were entertained by poetry, some of it highbrow, some of it lowbrow. They enjoyed lascivious entertainments with half-naked ladies. They enjoyed sex shows as well as morality plays. They enjoyed watching the misfortune of others, and were entertained by the excesses of the rich. They loved comedies and farces, making fun of others, and criticized their faults and their transgressions. They were entertained by tragedies, and shed tears to tales of woe. They used prisoners for entertainment. They were entertained by stories of their forebears, and made up wild tales of ghosts, and creatures that guarded distant gates, both geographical and mystical. They were entertained by their own religion, song and dance incorporated into festivals, and serious services to the glory of religion. Their heroes were always brave but had faults to overcome. Some had tempers, some were too proud, and some had doubts. This is what they considered entertainment. If you haven't guessed, I'm not talking about the Romans. I'm talking about us. I couldn't help myself. In doing a podcast about acting, I had to bring in an old friend. He's located right now out in Reno, Nevada, and I thought that he would add something to the show. I've known Art a long time. We met in sixth grade. We eventually wound up at Oak Park River Forest High School, where we got into the dramatic arts, where we acted in a variety of plays, musicals, Shakespearean dramas, well, you name it, we were in it. And... As anybody who meets a friend, we both went to the University of Illinois at Chicago. Art went one way and I went another. Art Lynch became a newsman, going about the country and putting together radio news in places such as Green River, Wyoming and Napa Valley, California. But eventually, he wound up in Las Vegas, Nevada, where he got into the entertainment business. And became a union organizer. I remember receiving letters from him over the years. Of stories about movie sets. And meeting celebrities. And insights into the film business. He went from being a newsman. And transferred over into the entertainment business. And he loved it. I wound up in the Army. So why does a screen actor, why should they be a member of a union?
6: Well, to begin with, the existence of the union means a scale, which is the minimum amount you should be paid to make a decent living. So the union establishes a contractual scale, and actors therefore make that scale. They get, uh, in film and television, residuals and commercials, it's called use fees. But you get additional checks for the use of your image or your voice uh, for as long as they use it, whereas a non-union person may get just a few hundred dollars and then it's used forever. In fact, uh, some of my students did Excalibur when it opened here in Las Vegas, and that ran the same commercial for nine years, for which they were paid a total of $250 at the start. So it protects you income-wise. Working conditions, if you have to do something hazardous, you have the choice to say no or you get paid extra for doing it. Uh, there's always uh, food, water. When you eat, you, get, you have the same food as the crew, which is usually quite good, um, unless they break the crew to go out and get their own meals, in which case you get some extra money to go out and buy your meals. So in effect, they're providing that you have basically good conditions on the set. They're also, the union also, the actors who get trailers, which are really just little tiny rooms and big trucks, um, they get those because the contract says you get those. Uh, it basically protects the minimum safety standards, comfort standards. Uh, make sure you get paid overtime. Lots of stuff that doesn't exist without the union. I'm not sure at what point it went from the Roman type guilds, but I know the Dark Ages came and they disappeared, and then of course you had the middle the middle the, the middle ages, the guilds forming. Those organizations were formed because actors were looked upon as equal, as you kind of mentioned about ancient Rome, equal to prostitutes. In fact, in the United States, at the time of Abraham Lincoln, there were signs on various hotels and restaurants that said, no dogs or actors allowed. And that's the time of, of course, Booth and um, the theater in the United States was at an all-time high. It it carried all the way into that part of the United States anyway and and, uh, really didn't disappear until after the Civil War, that strong bias.
1: Well, I uh, picked up a book called Performance and Identity in the Classical World by Anne Duncan. And she talks about the whole acting profession in the early times of Rome. It, it all, And she takes it back to the philosophy of being true to yourself. There was a question of equating acting with basically lying. Was the actor actually uh, taking part in a huge lie by uh, pretending to be someone else? So what they were doing is they were setting up suspicion... Of the actor, and uh, and I, I guess it was just another way to you know to keep the classes separated. But the thing is, if if an actor could get up there and and he was originally a slave and he could stand there and perform the part of a king and do it convincingly, what did the king have to stand on for uh, sitting on that throne? and it made those who sat on the throne or who were of the patrician class nervous because this slave could perform the part so well and duncan makes a, a convincing argument that the, this this matter of distrust may have started to the fact is the profession itself is 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 performance performing something that's not true but may be based in truth but uh uh
6: Now, this predates Rome, though. Why were Greek choruses looked so highly upon that?
1: Ah, but each country had its own view of the art. I'm taking it from basically a Roman view. I think the Greek actors had a much better rep uh, than the Roman ones did.
6: In Greece, some people became citizens through acting, Um, so they must have had a fairly high rep for that to happen.
1: In the Roman thing, it was a little more difficult, and thus we, came to, we come to the actor Rascius, who uh, rose from slave to freedman to uh, Equit. The uh, dictator Sulla handed him his gold ring and, and brought him up uh, to stand with the citizens of Rome. But the thing is, once he put on that gold ring, he wasn't allowed to act anymore, or rather accept money for it. So he lost his source of income the moment he became a full-fledged citizen in Rome. He's he's not one of the his story is not one of the many, it's one of the few uh but the thing is is that he they thought his performance was so wonderful and that he conducted himself so much like a citizen of Rome in private that the uh, dictator Sulla made him a citizen. But the thing is he lost his source of income the moment he put on the gold ring.
6: Hmm. I wonder if Roman scouts in the military were trained by actors. Oh, you've got to tell me where
1: you're going with that one.
6: Well, I don't know. I'm just wondering because uh, obviously during World War II, um, David Niven helped train the gentleman who was doing Montgomery as a vaudevillian on stage. Niven toned him down and trained him how to actually act like Montgomery, and they put him in uh, North Africa along with that fake army and faked out the Germans who thought D-Day was going to come from the south.
1: That's true. And,
6: and did the Romans do the same thing? Did they? Did they have? I know they used locals, but did they have Roman citizens trained how to appear local and disappear when they were doing reconnaissance?
1: You know, I don't know.
6: It would be know. interesting. It would be. It would be.
1: Except, except, you know, I could conclude this with uh, something I remember Gore Vidal said, and I can't. I can't quote him directly. I wish I had it in front of me. He said, "In, in all of." Uh, in all of the history of Rome, not once did the Praetorian Guard uh, train an actor to pretend to be emperor. <laughs> we have a segment ready for you. It seems before Art came into the studio, we, he and I took a little trip and uh, we recorded it. So uh, we got it uh, ready for you and uh, we'll play it. And I, I think you'll enjoy it. So let's listen in. This is Rob Kane, how uh, we have transported Art Lynch in our time machine uh, back to approximately 51 BC. We convinced him to make a speech, to make a pitch to a theater full of actors, writers, and poets uh, in the theater of Marcellus. It's a beautiful theater, built on level ground. It has uh, doric and ionic columns. And we filled it up with uh, such notables. And this is really easy to do when you have a time machine. But uh, we full- filled it up with a variety of notables. Everybody from uh, Aristophanes, Euripides, Plautus, Seneca, Sophocles. We got uh, we get We even got Homer. Homer didn't want to get into the time machine, but we were able to get him in there just the same. And what Mr. Lynch is going to do is he's going to make a pitch to these famous writers, these famous actors. We even got Roscius in the audience, and uh, he's sitting in the front. A lot of people right now, I can see him from where I'm standing, who are just thrilled that he's here. He was just as handsome as he was back during the time of Cicero. Mr. Lynch is going to make his pitch on why having an actors' union is important. Now, they do have guilds in 51 B.C., uh, but Mr. Lynch is going to try to bring some of his oratory skills in describing why a Screen Actors' Union guild is important. Now, they don't have movies back in this time period, but the thing is, I think... The Screen Actors' Guild is willing to do a few adjustments in their bylaws, especially since time travel has been discovered. It's a whole new source of union dues, and they need representation like everybody else. So uh, everyone's in their seats. Uh, Mr. Lynch has taken his position in the center stage and well we're going to see how well he can do in convincing this room full of actors, writers, playwrights from across the the eons and decades of Greek and Roman poetry writing, playwriting and epic writing to see if he can convince them that the Union is the way to go for them. So let's, let's, we're going to quiet down and we're going to listen to uh, Art Lynch from the uh, Screen Actors Guild who is going to address the best of Greek and Roman acting, poetry, and oratory. Uh, so this national board director is about to begin a speech. Let's listen in. It's uh, common here at the theater Micellis, to get everybody's attention with a round of flutes before the speaker commences. So let's listen in and hear what he has to say.
6: You represent the best of the best. You represent those that are blessed with the talents, the gifts, and the rewards of your skills and your ability to entertain, inform, manipulate. You work with other people in doing so. Those other people do not have the benefits that you do. Those other people do not have the abilities to rise up or to be treated with the respect that you receive, you will have a stronger stronger troop, a stronger place in society, and a stronger position when you're at the tables of the leadership. If you have well-trained, well-treated, and professional people backing you up and behind you when you perform.
1: Well, that concludes uh, Mr. Lynch's speech. Uh, He seems to have made an impression on these people, and uh, he left the stage. He's walking through the audience, and he's shaking hands. And we're going to try to get a comment from him as he makes his way to the exit of the theater. Uh, Mr. Lynch, Mr. Lynch, can you spare us a moment, please? Mr. Lynch, please, Uh, I'd like to ask a question. Thank you. Mr. Lynch, uh, how effective do you think your speech will be tonight?
6: It might not work because, of course, in ancient Rome, uh, the value of life and the value of a lot of things was different than now. So it is quite probable that these same people would not be sticking their necks out for the uh, what in England would have been called later the plebeian class. Um, they probably would have just protected themselves and
1: enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to answer my question. I know you have to go. Uh, to my understanding, you have a... Uh, appointment with the playwright Juvenal before your speech. uh, You must have talked to him because he said something about wanting to sign up. Uh, Thank you very much and have a good evening. All right, good night. All right, bye-bye. Bye. This concludes our broadcast at the Theater of Macellus back in 51 BC. It's time to go back to our regularly scheduled broadcast of Ancient Rome Refocused. Who is Quintus Roscius Gallus? At one time, a nobody. An upstart on the acting scene. We all have to start somewhere. He was born of slaves, and he was eventually made a freedman by a benevolent master. Now talent is noticed in Rome, the ability to say a line and do it with feeling is a rare gift, especially if you can recite Homer. To make others feel is the important thing, and the Romans are a tough lot. You know the type I mean. The Stoics. Those are the types that can stand on a ship and hold on to the mast, and as it sinks between the waves, pretend to feel nothing because they preserved their dignity. Roscius knew there were Stoics chuckling to themselves all over Rome. But only at night when the wife went to sleep and the moon was full and the crickets were in the air to join them in their laughter. Now Roscius probably started out performing in small acting troupes, maybe doing two or three shows a day, running between theater to theater, and could be seen in the streets, hurrying to his next performance. To spout lines in a play by a Greek playwright, the actors speaking Latin, so that it could be heard and understood by the Latin ear. If you do two or three productions at once, this makes acting a dangerous sport. Hopefully, you don't speak the lines from the wrong show, which could be an embarrassing mistake to speak tragic prose during a comedic farce and vice versa Starting out, even in Rome, was difficult. One had to find work, and one had to find something that set you apart, that made you different. But Roscius was handsome. His only flaw was that he squinted, which some believe was because of bad eyesight. But even that, he turned it into an asset. His squint made men and women flock to him. He was very handsome. And often they followed him home after the performances. And probably more than once, he had his pick of the admirers. Probably on a cool fall day, he was walking by the floor. He heard a voice float upon the wind. It was a familiar voice. He changed his direction to the open space and saw a crowd gathered near the rostrum. It was Cicero, Cicero the great advocate, Cicero the hero of the great Catalina conspiracy. The crowds came from everywhere to hear him speak, to hear his words, and Roscius does the same. He is enamored by the way Cicero takes the rostrum, like he is walking onto the stage and is addressing the gods themselves. Roscius watches Cicero carefully. Every gesture, every word that comes out of his mouth seems practiced. It is perfection. Roscius listened intently to Cicero's speech, and something happened. A fly flew too close to the great man's nose, and without missing a beat, Cicero reached out and plucked the fly from the air and crushed it between his two fingers at the moment he spoke of crushing the Catalina Conspiracy. The crowd roared with laughter and approval. tries to catch the great man's eye, but is ignored. So he returns the next day. Once more, Cicero is to address the crowds in the forum. This time, Roscius Danzatoga. Toga is a tall man, and he towers over the crowds. He has come to watch how Cicero stands on the rostrum. He listens to how Cicero speaks and pays careful attention to the inflections of his Latin. He is copying Cicero. He is studying him, how he stands, how he speaks. Brascius has even changed his hair. No prissy do of an actor, no curls. He now has the unkept hair of a man who twists strands of it at night to come up with the perfect line in writing a great work, a great speech to be heard in the forum, a man who pulls his hair out while he thinks great thoughts. Roscius copies every move that Cicero makes, how he walks, how he addresses the crowd, even the inflection of how he speaks. He is copying him down to the very minutest detail. The actor has entered an advanced actor's class of his own making, where reality, drama, and oratory mix. Roscius can now see that the great man Cicero has noticed him, Well, it's not hard to do. Every move he makes is being copied by the handsome young man who stands in the audience. Cicero stops for a moment in the middle of his speech and wonders why this man comes day after day to watch him. And there's only one reason he can think of. Another noble has decided to take up the law. The reason Cicero is so enamored by the young man is that Cicero is staring at himself. Tonight, in front of a polished shield, Roscius shall practice how Cicero moves, how Cicero talks, the way that Cicero holds his arms. He got the shield in the African market and shined it to a high buff, so that he could see his reflection. The vendor said it was owned by Hector of Troy, a vendor's tale that must be taken with a grain of salt. And an eyebrow raised, like everything else in life, no one knows the truth like people like the word of a vendor in a market, one can never be sure what is real and what is not. As the fates play with Cicero, the fates play with Roscius, no one knows the future. There's only one way to go, forward, down the road, in front of you. bald Alexander Leach, otherwise known as Cary Grant. Well, at one time a nobody, at one time an upstart on the actor's scene. He was born in Bristol, England. His mother was placed in a mental institution by his father. He was abandoned when he was ten, when his father remarried. He was expelled from the Fairfield Grammar School in 1918 and out of necessity, joined a stage troupe where he learned the skills of stilt walking and tumbling. He started out in small shows, raucous, tumbling shows, the days of Vaudeville, where performances could be as many as three to four shows a day. The actors traveled from town to town on the train, and stayed in cheap hotels as they performed in the local theater. These were not high-class shows. It was the type of performance where a belly laugh was easily achieved from working-class folk. A pratfall would do just as well as a sophisticated line. He was handsome and talented. Too qualities that got him his role in his first Broadway show. Biographies and Hollywood magazines described his looks as dashing. His personality was debonair, and he was always cast as the leading man. Going from vaudeville to Broadway meant that the clientele, the audience that came to see him, changed He entered a different world. They were no longer working people, but what the Americans call swells. And probably, he was invited to a party and he was told to wear a tux. A tuxedo. It was more than likely in New York City, in one of those apartments on the Upper East Side. A palace in a skyscraper. Growing up, He would have never been invited to such a place. The doormen would have chased him away by taking one look at his clothes. But now, now, he wore a tuxedo. He looked like the type of person who hangs out at nightclubs and listens to Cole Porter at two in the morning. This time, the door was open to him by the doorman, with a smile and a tip of the hat. A butler answers the door and takes his coat, not even giving him a second glance. The room is filled with black tuxes, and the women wear white silken gowns. This seems to be the standard uniform. Tuxedos for the men. White silken dresses for the women. Drinks and cigarettes for everyone. In this monkey suit it is no different than wearing a costume. He is playing a part and the room is filled with his audience. Archie feels he has entered a fantasy land, something he only read about in books or seen upon the screen for a penny a show. As he walks around the room, talking to the guests, he is always slightly afraid that his Bristol accent will accidentally fall out of his mouth. He had obtained a record on diction. A man reciting Keats in a posh accent. A record to change your class by the way you speak. And he perfected how the man sounded. In his two dollar a month apartment, he repeated the words over and over again. To match the toff the upper-crust fellow who recorded it. He could imitate him perfectly. Pensive they sit and roll their languid eyes, nibble their toast, and cool their tea with sighs. That line of Keats reminded him of Alice in Wonderland, and standing there in the apartment with all the people that surrounded him He felt that he was right smack in the middle of it. Archie is introduced by the host. This is that actor fellow I told you about. He's appearing in the show Rio Rita. You must see it. He is very good. Archie is very aware how people speak. The Americans, though many are not aware of it, speak in many different accents. Some speak in Upper West Side, some speak in Upper East Side, some speak in Harvard, and some speak in Bostonian accents. Archie is a good mimic, he was taught by the best. A man he met in vaudeville charged him two bits to speak American. Archie could tumble, he could juggle, he could walk on stilts, he knew comic timing. It is rumored in a movie, years later, that he met a director on the set of Awful Truth, a gentleman named Leo McCary. They both looked very much alike. And he took on his mannerisms and adopted them and became Cary Grant by someone he met on the film set. He walked from behind the camera and to the front of the camera, taking the man's personality with him. At the party, he met a Harvard graduate. He imitated exactly the way the young man stood with a drink in his left hand and his right hand in his pocket. The guy must have thought he was looking in the mirror. It is too easy. People tend to like you more when they think they have found a soulmate, an exact copy of themselves. Person after person that he meets at the party tells him that he should be in Hollywood that he should be in the movies. You have the face for it, the women giggle, as they look at him with languid eyes. For the entire evening, the women swoon over him, the men as well. Finally, the idea takes root, and he decides that he should go. But the cost of a ticket to Hollywood is $30, an astronomical sum. One ticket will wipe out its savings. Just little over a decade ago, he processed through Ellis Island somewhere around 1920. In America, it was not unusual for people to start new lives. To begin again as someone else. He decides to blow everything. To make the journey. Grant, years later, would be quoted. Everyone wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. There is another quote as well. A hint into who or what he thought he was. A small hint back to Roscius. Cary Grant said, I pretended to be somebody I wanted to be, and I finally became that person, or he became me, or we met at some point. Probably, probably, when he was alone, he looked at himself in the mirror and made the decision he could see himself in the shiny mirror and he practiced a smile and a look. Archie Leach would be left behind. He would go to Hollywood. He knew that the fates were playing with them, but the fates were women, and women have always been kind to him. One cannot be sure what is real or what is not. One cannot be sure of the future, Only there do the fates play, and tempt you with glimpses that must be taken with a grain of salt and an eyebrow raised. Like everything else in life, no one knows the truth. Like people, like the word of a vendor in a market, one can never be sure what is real and what is not. No one knows the future. There's only one way to go, forward, down the road, in front of you. At one time, an upstart on the entertainment scene. In previous segments, we tried to answer who is Roskiss. Who is Archibald Leach? I get to interview the man himself, and those who know him. I think you should know him, too. Cody Garcia, film editor.
7: Well, James is a very passionate dedicated man. He works harder than anybody else I know. He's really good at working with people, getting a team together. He surrounds himself with the best people. He's really, he's really a nice guy once you get to know him. He may seem a little rough around the edges, but once you get to know him, he is one of the best producers and directors I've probably ever met. He's a great friend, and he's pretty much a great mentor to me, actually. He's taught me a lot of things about film, about how to deal, about how to be professional. And when I've had hard times, he's helped me out in the past. He's helped a lot of people out. And in fact, he's pretty much the go-to guy for everything. If If you're in trouble, if you need something, if everybody else has bailed on you and you really need someone there to help you out, James is your guy. He's the only guy who will stand behind you, even though everyone else abandons you.
8: He would be the man in charge. He would be the one setting the rules.
1: Grayson Lewis,
8: actor saying this is what needs to happen but he'd be in a happy manner he would he'd keep people calm because he he knows how to do that he knows how to how to keep people happy and calm and keep them safe so he would be the one directing people okay this is where you need to go this is the exits this is this is what needs to happen to get everybody out alive
9: originally i wasn't going to audition for him it was actually my brother but i just tagged along with him for the night
1: Michelle Stratton, actor.
9: And James, for fun, had me read for him, and he ended up calling me practically the next day, offering a role in his production.
1: It is then I asked her if she got the part simply by showing up on the set. She was quick to answer.
9: Basically, <laughs> yeah. I get involved in a lot of productions that way. It's kind of weird, but yeah.
1: I told her that she must have made a big impression on James, Because in his email, he indicated that he took one look at her and decided to go home and write her into the script.
9: I guess so. I mean, hey.
1: (laughs) Michael Kripchak, actor on James A. He
10: He's probably laughing and talking to a lot of people, um, being loud and friendly. And he's probably making deals and, you know, selling the people he cares about. That's the one thing about James. He, He will always talk you up and all the people he's worked with. like He's always been very glowing. Yeah.
1: Michelle
10: Stratton.
9: James actually did something that no other director has ever done for me, and I found it a very unique uh, technique to help the actors. What he did is that we had a scene where me and another actress had to produce a lot of tension between each other, so he pulled the other actress aside and told her, listen, you need to pull Michelle's hair during the scene, you need to insult her while we're not filming, so she just you know she's hate feels hatred towards you so basically this woman comes up to me while we're not filming and she tells me how unprofessional something i did was and i got very angry at her because no. i thought well how dare she you know criticize me and after that we began to film the scene and throughout the scene i was literally angry at this woman at the end she came up and apologized and explained that it was all for, you know just for the acting and it was a great technique i've never used before
5: Crisis. This was supposed to
8: be a peaceful transition of power. Marcus Antonius,
1: James A. Bretney, movie director. Tell us about your project.
11: Uh, My project is called Universal Empire. It is a TV series pilot uh, set in ancient Rome, 87 B.C., at the time of the Marian Revolution. I've always been fascinated with ancient Rome and stories about Julius Caesar. And once I got reading about these men, I couldn't stop reading about them. And then the BBC's HBO series Rome came out and I felt compelled to sort of add to it, given what I've observed and read, particularly from Pluton's Live.
5: Um,
11: I've used a lot of public domain research, the uh, nlb.edu, that resource, uh, the, the books of libius going to the original source themselves, as well as reading a couple other books. Uh, one book is... History of Rome by Michael Grant that I've leaned on quite a bit.
1: What is important about writing an historical drama? Is it the history or just the conflict?
11: Um, A lot of times uh, people want to say things about what's going on in the present present day, the present circumstance, Um, using either science fiction or historical fiction. Um, science fiction is, is is projecting an idea out into the future. Well, for instance, like Escape from New York, he talked about a, a dystopian reality um, by John Carpenter. Or, or conversely, they look towards the past, such, such as Howard Fast did with Spartacus in his novel. Um, I had felt certain things about our current political circumstances that, if I was taken and told those stories in a contemporary setting, it would be very boring. So I find that visually it's more interesting to, to describe maybe our present circumstances by using um, history as a vehicle. Uh, I try to stay historically accurate as much as possible, but it's really about telling a story, whether it's a small story, Um, about a man and his father, his his adult relationship to his father, like the story of Criticus is, or whether it's a a larger story about a man in the the movement, like a political story. Um, I try to use the history as a a background or as as a world of my
1: story, if that makes sense. If you wanted to find an actor in Rome, you simply purchased one. But even that took skill. You had to find someone who could recite Homer or was pretty enough to be accepted as the hero upon the stage. But nowadays, it's a little easier.
11: Yeah, there's lots of ways to get actors. Uh, L.A. Casting is my primary resource. I find it is a very powerful resource at finding um, talent. Uh, Backstage West is another good resource. You can also contact... The agents themselves. If you're going after a particular star, but um, I did, uh, you know, I had a, uh, I felt, I developed a number of of uh, friends and contacts who are actors, people I've worked with before, and I wanted to work with them again. Um, for this movie, I went with, I went with people that I knew and people that I've worked with before, and that they're typically people that I depend on.
1: So. Michelle Stratton on acting. In ancient Rome as compared to acting as it is today. I think
9: nowadays there's more to pull from in producing a character. Obviously because more time has passed. But it seems like in ancient Rome, everything, theater would be more... I don't want to say gaudy, but showy because since they didn't have things like cameras back then in film, they had to be very over the top to represent what emotion they were trying to convey. When you're in theater, you have to worry about projecting and connecting with everyone in the audience, but film is a lot different. Both are difficult in their um, respected ways, but film, you know, you're right there with the camera, you just focus on the camera, focus on giving all your attention to that one thing as opposed to everyone in the audience.
1: I asked James why he chose Creticus, Marcus Antonius Creticus, as the subject of his story, and he talked about wanting to reveal or to dramatize the earlier Republican times, that he had a fascination for it. There's not a lot out there about Marcus Antonius Creticus. It seems he was a Roman politician. He was a member of the Antonius family. He was the son of Marcus Antonius Orator. And he was married to Julia Antonia, and they had three sons, one of them being Mark Antony. Now, the most interesting thing about him, and it makes a great TV show, is the fact is, is he was given the mission of clearing the Mediterranean of pirates, which is what Pompey was asked to do years later. But it didn't quite work out for him because he looted the province of Crete, They weren't happy with the Roman governor, and the people of Crete made a treaty with the pirates. And he was totally defeated in a naval battle and, and signed a disgraceful treaty, which got back to Rome and ruined his career. He was called the Man of Chalk, which is not a very impressive title. Look what they called Pompeii. Pompeii the Great. And that makes a great television drama.
11: Well, I felt that the Julius Caesar story, though it's been done many times, it hasn't been done right. And I felt that he needed to tell that larger story, which is a plan, uh, which is an ambition of mine. I, I needed to go back in the past and sort of reveal what uh, the history was before that. And even before Spartacus as preceded Julius Caesar, and before that, Marius. I need to tell the story of who Marius was because Marius, Gracchus, and Marius really set up uh, who Julius Caesar would become. So, I am always fascinated with the late Republican period, the death of the Republic. I think they do mirror our own times. I don't think that we're going to go down that route, but uh, I, but I do think that uh, it's, it's just a topic that uh, Americans should explore. I mean, certainly our founding fathers felt compelled to explore those topics as evidence of episode one of Ancient Realm Refocus. Is that right?
1: Yeah, uh, I believe so, yes. (laughs) So
11: so yeah, I mean I think it's part of our I think it's part of our national heritage. You always see a lot of British productions Discuss and explore uh, Roman themes, but I, I think I think we have an, an American tradition too that uh, of, of of exploring the Roman genre. Certainly in the fifties and sixties, and, and hopefully it'll
1: revive somewhat now. Yeah. I knew James was in the military. I knew he was very proud of his service, and I read somewhere on a biography. That he decided to go into the dramatic arts uh, while he was deployed, but there was no explanation in the uh, posting on the web of why he came to this decision. James and I did more than just have an interview over the telephone we We exchanged constant emails, and I pressed him over and over again for an answer, and he was evasive, but eventually he started to talk about it. I got an email which started out like this. I did not get serious about art until the fall of 2005 in Egypt. I bought a book called The Artist's Call, and I read about Pope John Paul II's call to Artists. The rest of the story is a bunch of baby steps, half steps, side steps, and still I wonder what I am doing. Art is tough because it brought about suffering a lot of times great art sometimes. Oh, I don't know. The paragraph ends there. He piqued my curiosity. I had to look it up. Letter of His Holiness, Pope John Paul II to Artists, published in 1999. I found it on the web. In bold, the first headline reads, The Artist, Image of God the Creator. Paragraph 1 none can sense more deeply than you artists ingenious creators of beauty that you are something of the pathos with which god at the dawn of creation looked upon the work of his hands a glimmer of that feeling has shown so often in your eyes when like the artists of every age captivated by the hidden power of sounds and words colors and shapes you have admired the work of your inspiration sensing in it some echo of the mystery of creation with which God, the sole creator of all things, has wished in some way to associate with you. Cody Garcia, film editor.
7: My ambition is just to have as much fun as possible doing what I love every day. And if I'm the best at it, then that's just icing on the cake to me because right now this is the greatest job in the world to me and I wouldn't change a thing. And I am so happy and my family is so proud of everything that I've done here and my friends are proud of me and it just feels so good to wake up every morning and not have to walk in to a job I completely hate where I can just get up in the morning and I can go and I can help someone share a story and share the perspective with the rest of the world and actually do something that can actually potentially change the human condition and make people aware of things Rather than people just walk through, environment to entertain. It, it's just if I can do that every day, then this is the greatest job in the world.
11: Facebook has uh, Universal Empire. I'm on Facebook, and I'm also on YouTube. If you type in Universal Empire, you'll find the you'll find the uh, the trailer. Um, and as far as getting Universal Empire out to larger markets, where in discussion about putting a website up and selling it either through the website or perhaps securing distribution from from an outside source, but we're we're still exploring that.
1: How does one pitch a movie?
11: You have to make a, an investment to stay in Los Angeles, and you have to meet the people. I mean, the, you just have to do it. That's why so many people move to Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I live here now. I've been living here for the past two or three years. Um, once you, you get here, it's a little easier to, uh, set up meetings, to meet people, to go to, to go to, um to pitch conferences that they have. And it's not easy and I haven't really figured it out yet, but, I mean, I met Ricky Schroeder by, you know, talking to his manager or talking to his publicist, exchanging an emails and I, that I met, and then I talked to on the, on the phone and then I had a, a real brief meeting with them. so I mean it's um it's uh it's not as Byzantian or and it, it's not as mysterious as one might think it's pretty straightforward it's like any other business so
1: any advice to anyone making their own movie
11: you have to do what's in your heart you have you have to express yourself I mean, that's why boom, Americans are the most productive people in the world because we have a uh, we have a, a, an ability to be more creative. But definitely express yourself. Find uh, and find your own path. That's, that's the best advice I can I can give to anyone.
1: Have you always been interested in movie making?
11: Something I've always been interested in, but it's not, it's something I did, wasn't always didn't always do. I always felt that it was a uh, I felt it was for somebody else. I, I just didn't have the guts to really explore. I it, it, to be honest with myself or who I really was. So it took some time, um, and, and the Army was a part of, of my learning process, and, and I'm glad I did it. But, but uh, it was something I've always wanted to do, yes.
1: What are you working on next?
11: Well, I have a number of um, intellectual property that I'm developing, including a Western and, and some that I've acquired. This business is all about helping yourself and helping other people. So taking the universal empire to the next level, getting it pitched, getting it distributed out there is certainly my my next goal.
1: What's your favorite part of history? It doesn't have to be Roman, I'm just curious.
11: I do, I do. I'll be honest with you, it is is the Romans because uh, the Romans enjoyed a, a standard of living not seen by any other people until the Victorian era. I mean, they had hot water, they bathed, they lived in houses, and and, and they had centralized heating. And I mean, yeah, I remember the, the stories and uh, the the episode the episode where he talked about the the hardships the Romans had to deal with. But uh, by and large, the Romans enjoy the same standard of living as our, our Our ancestors
1: did a 100 years ago, so I think that's quite remarkable. Okay, Uh, you got an unlimited budget and the resources of Spielberg. So what part of Roman history, other than Credicus would you undertake?
11: Let's see. I would think that the second Punic War would be a very interesting topic. It would have to be a multi, you'd have to tell that several hours. So to be able to get the budget for something like that would be... Incredible. Uh, the ship, uh, well, there wasn't a lot of ship battles, but the first unit war, they had a lot of ship battles, but, uh, the story of the Battle of Kane would be great. I love dealing, I love working with lots and lots of extras, and I love those epic battles. Uh, that would be great. That would be perfect. Yeah, Hannibal is, is, I think, uh, Vin Diesel's trying to get, uh, get that story told, and he's been trying to do it for a while
1: that would be probably something worth exploring. Do you see any comparisons with America today and certain periods of the ancient world?
11: Yes. We are in a where we have to d- decide whether or not we're going to choose the path between uh, Cato and, and Caesar or I think in our American history we're trying to discern that next path. I, I think that that is the defining point of our time is to decide, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, which which path are we going to choose? Are we going to stay with a Republican form of uh, democracy or are we going towards monarchy or dictatorship? Uh, those are questions that uh, we all as a nation have to decide, and we
1: will. I think this nation's been worrying about that for a long time.
11: <laughs> Probably 200 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um yeah. Uh, so tell us what, what do you think is the next step for your project uh, what do you think has to be done
11: we have to finish the, fa- the fine cut um, it's just getting the time and the resources to finish the fine
1: cut is where we're at the
7: important thing of being an editor is understanding the rhythm of the story
1: Cody Garcia
7: understanding the emotional bits the emotional pieces because it's so easy just to chop up, like, a story and just basically just show a story. It's a hard thing to get people involved in the story, to make people actually feel the story rather than just watching a story. Because, believe it or not, when you're editing, the story itself is actually alive. The whole thing is alive. It's a living, breathing object. And it's talking to you. And it's trying to tell you how to get the best movie out of what you have. But... Here's the catch. You have so much stuff in there, in your way, that you have to sort through it all. It's like a giant puzzle. And you got to find the best thing. And you it's just tinkering and messing around and trying to figure out what works best, what works here. It's just little tiny emotions. It's a game of interest. And if you can just get that one look, maybe that one look of redemption on a guy's face, or maybe that moment of realization or... Maybe there's a moment that makes people sad. You know you're on the right track and you know you're going somewhere with it. And to me, that's what it's all about. It's all about finding those little precious moments that
11: help accelerate a story beyond just a guy showing a story on a screen. I'll tell you how this, this whole thing went about, that came about. first thing I did was I made alliances, friendships with the reenactors. The reenactors had the equipment and they had the costumes. Without the equipment and the costumes, um, yes, there's several groups in LA. There's a the cohort Praetoria, which is led by a man named Tony Martos. Uh, there is a prop master named Kyle Kalema who provided a lot of the props for this. He's a he's a working prop master. He's, he's excellent. Um, and then there's the San Diego group called the Knights. Legion Hispania, led by, uh, John Marker. Those, those three men right there, also Gil Whitley, who was a part of the cohort Praetoria one time, since went away. Those three men right there provided 90% of my props. Now, I've since become an expert at, uh, female costumes, women's costumes. It's a, it's a bit more elaborate and it's a lot more intricate.
1: Michelle Stratton.
9: I mean, it kind of looks like a sari in India, but besides that...
1: Well, it it does,
9: yeah. It does, yeah, definitely. But, um, I mean, in in America, it's not very similar to anything we wear, unless you have those styles like Roman sandals and those long skirts girls wear. But besides that, it's very different to what people wear now. That
11: sort of information was provided by Laura Marcos, Tony's wife, uh, Carly Harvey, uh, Peter Hopkins... Peter Hobson's girlfriend and um, Linda Satorius. Um, Linda actually helped me a lot. She provided the props for Criticus's house. Um, there's a there's a caning shot where you get to see the the scrolls that that Criticus was using in the tent scene, and then at his house where him and his wife were to just finished dinner. All those were provided by Linda Satorius. She was very generous. That's why. She has um, she has a producer credit. Um, once I made these alliances with the reenactor community, I was then able to um, take my company, which is composed of mostly friends of mine that I met through film school, the Art Institute of California, Los Angeles, and and then also um, some of my actor friends, um, particularly Michael Kripschick, first thing really when it comes down to roles,
10: and I get this also from just talking to casting directors, is are you right for the part? Do you look the part? Are you what they want? And unless you go in there and change their minds for what they're looking for, which you really can't predict. If you go in there predicting one thing, you're probably going to be wrong. Um, but it really comes down to a look and what they're looking for. So, in that And that has to do with your look physically, probably primarily when it comes to... Um, to film for stage it's a little different um, but for film it's definitely if you have a look and then beyond that then it's personality and what you I guess <laughs> to be totally philosophical about it what your soul brings to the actual character that's written on the page well as an actor I I was surprised at how different acting for film was it, uh, on some levels it, it's it's very very night and day when it comes to prep and uh, acting on stage you get time to you know, you have two, three hours to actually go through your character's arc um, on stage. In acting, you could be shooting the end at the beginning and go from a laughing scene to a crying scene just because locations are important. So that's from the acting standpoint. But as far as actually getting cast, uh, film is so much more about look. From stage, you could put on tons of makeup from stage. It feels like people are more interested in the actual performance.
11: But I met these people through through school. Um i on the school for the, the post-9-11 GI Bill. And, you know, the military does teach you how to to organize and manage people, manage resources, and project project and risk management. So we were able to pull it all off in four or five days, which was incredible. Now I directed it um, with something like this, but so personally I had
1: to direct it myself. Grayson Lewis,
8: actor. James asked me to come down and uh, portray the antagonist in his film, in his pilot. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into because James went full on everything with armor, with recreating everything as it was. The week was very intense because the armor that I wore was very heavy and the weapons were uh, authentic.
1: The armor was heavy and the weapons were authentic," Grayson Lewis said. Probably James A. Bretney had little sympathy for the actors who were uncomfortable in their armor when he himself wore the modern equivalent of body armor on deployment. The average Roman soldier lived in his armor like a tortoise in his shell. He ran in it, stood guard in it, and would fall down in it, bruising shoulder and rib where the slam of the body came up against the ground. This is the crossroads between reality and fiction the armor is your second skin and one is happy to stink in it if it means you live another day armor is heavy when you march 20 miles in it and the authenticity of your weapon is how well it saves your life but if you can portray that while the camera is rolling you're good
8: to go it was it was a quick a quick film a quick shoot, but it was very intense because Jimbo Jimbo likes to keep his 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 shoots as professional as possible. It was very quick, stop and go. This is what we need to do to fix this. Uh, if you don't understand any of this history, I'll explain it to you to where you you know what you're saying. And it was it was a wonderful week. I, I learned a whole lot about Roman history. And I, I met a lot of great people on the shoot.
11: I was deployed three times. Well, four times if you include Egypt. Most people don't. I was deployed for two months in a Sulaymaniyah uh, stand uh, with the 10th Special Forces Group. And then with 10th Group, we went back in Mosul for five months and from from January to, to May of 2004, during the April uprising, that was not fun. Another five months, we went back, I think, in 2004, later in 2004, for another five months. Uh, that was during uh, during the end part of August, October through, through March 2005. Then I was in Egypt for a peacekeeping mission for five
1: months. That was a uh, danger there was relatively minor. Being that you were in the military, do you ever make comparisons between the Romans and the American army?
11: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of the things that the Romans did still exist today, including the organization from the squad, platoon, company. That, that sort of organization that formed out of fighting the Samnite Wars still exists today. Even military formations, the fact that we fight in groups versus individuals, that Roman culture of that, that Roman ethos uh, still exists with us today. <laughs> it's like, uh, there's a, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote from Christopher Warren's epitaph. If you want to see his monument, look around. The same is true for the Romans. I think the epitaph on Christopher Wren's, the quote goes, if you want to see his monument, look around. Christopher Wren wrote maybe structures that still exist in London. The same is true for the Romans. If you want this, to see the monuments left to the Romans, look around. Look in your present day. Ah, uh, everything okay. is particularly in the military. Everything, everything that is that defines our, our military culture and the American military culture is, is almost Roman in, in, um, in nature. Or in origin, anyway. I want to mention that um, there's a big difference between the way the Romans look at actors versus the way Americans look at actors, um, and yeah. I think the Romans actually have it right. <laughs> that, that, say that again. Uh, say. Well, you, you mentioned in your email that he uh, set up the, the sort of the scene of 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 the uh, of of the, of, the, of the next episode. The next podcast is being about about actors. i got to tell you, um, the way the Romans looked at actors then, I think, versus the way we look at actors now, I think are two totally different universes. Uh, Romans really didn't, in my opinion, my opinion, I could be wrong, but Romans, they did not like actors. They, they, they hated them. They thought they were the worst. To actually entertain somebody was probably one of the lowest things you could do. They associated them with the lowest rungs of society with gladiators and uh, painted ladies. There were Roman actors that, that probably did both. They are They were celebrated sometimes for their profession, but, you know, it was, they were on the lowest rung of society, whereas in America, we, we really worship celebrity and... You know, as a guy who's looking from the inside, or who's in the inside looking out, I mean, it's a lot like making sausage. Is what I'm <laughs> it's a business. It's it's fun. I'm not saying it's. I mean, it's it's got it's, it's doing what I love doing what I do, and I can't imagine doing anything else. But um, I mean, there's much more noble. There there are lots of noble activities out there. One thing, celebrities. We have a celebrity culture that's kind of strange. There are people that are they're famous for just being famous. And, maybe the, and I'm sure that existed in the Roman days, too. I'm just, I'm just
1: making a comment about celebrity culture. In regards to setting up a scene, how do you get a crowd of people to do what you want in character?
11: Good question. Um, a lot of these people are professionals. Um, either they have... Either they're getting paid for doing it in the past, or they've made the investment that that's what they want to do is to eventually get paid for their work. So, when you, so they're very familiar with the set protocol of uh, camera speeding, sound speeding, actors ready, cloud set, action, you know. So they're, they're pretty much familiar with that and they know to use their imagination and to emote that way. Directing extras is primarily a job for the assistant director. And in my case, it was Denon Williams. Prepping the actor is different. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated to give cameras on the, on the actor. Um, I use a variety of techniques learned from three of my mentors, Eve Martin, uh, Mark Travis is another director, and then John Sarno is an acting teacher in North Hollywood. But primarily... You want to go with goal, motivation, and conflict. What is the What is the goal of the character in this scene? The goal it is for a Criticus to receive a report from his friend and to drink with him. What's his motivation? He wants to be liked by his friend, Labinius. Labinius is his friend. Um, what's the conflict? The conflict is is Labinius is sending him information that he doesn't want to hear. That That is the basic scene breakdown. Then you have to create a kinship, um that didn't exist. I mean, Max Ari and Michael Kripschick, they didn't know each other very well. They worked together on a film prior to that, but they didn't know each other. So you give them exercises to sort of get them to like each other. You say, okay, well, for two minutes you guys are going to compliment each other and compliment each other for 30 seconds or two minutes or how so long. The, you know, I mean, those are those are things that directors do to to uh, to engage the actor's imagination and, and to make it real.
1: Michael Kripchak.
10: On set, he he likes to have a very organic filming for it. Um, we did things lots of times. He wanted us to improvise. He would keep camera rolling and have us just continue talking as if we were the characters going off script to prepare for actual shooting beforehand. Before each scene, I would say he's done. And I would say out of, out of everything I've done, other than theater of course, he's probably helped as a director um, get an idea of my character more than any any other film director has. I guess it wasn't so much, this is, this is Credicus, this is who he is, it was more so getting, talking to me about things in my life and what's important to me and connecting that to things that Credicus values. So basically helping me tap into the parts that were already in myself that were similar to Credicus. Wow. Credicus, he was very torn through, I guess, accomplishment and um, respect for his father, love for his father, doing what was right for himself or doing what was right for his father. He he was very torn between, um, I could say, his duty and responsibility. And um, for lack of a better way to put it, off the top of my head I would say what's, what he wanted which I mean he wanted power and he wanted all this but ultimately as as the film goes through he needed to kind of paying his father to get there and so it was a struggle for him
11: and then there's things that actors do there's just as Stravinsky wrote books about, about how to engage the imagination make things real to, to bring authentic moment to life method that's an art Ancient art that goes back 4,000 years almost, uh, or or, or even the
1: dawn of time. There was only one Roskiss. There was only one Cary Grant. There is only one James A. Bretney. Whether it's the time of Roskiss or the Hollywood of the 40s and 50s or the world of Hollywood in the now. The people are the same. James is a large guy, expansive. He has big ideas, and he has the personality to match. He can make people like him. Probably, probably, as he drove down Ventura Boulevard, he looked in the rear view mirror and wondered about his future and whether the fates were playing with him. I admit I am jealous of him. He was my youth before I became safe. He has shown courage to go after what he wants. We are both military men, but in his career, he was the one that faced real physical danger. One can face the possibility of extinction, or you can face the possibility of failure. Going after what you want is the greatest courage of all. I don't believe he will fail as long as he believes in himself. You walk down the road called the Via Appia or you drive down Ventura Boulevard, but each gives you the same feeling That all roads lead to Rome Especially when the Destination is your Dream Before we end the show I'd like to thank the guys Again from Hang Massive. They're the ones who did the music For the opening dramatic Narration at the beginning of the show Check out their music On hangmassive.org Or go to YouTube And listen to their music. It's absolutely fantastic. Also, I want to thank uh, my friend and buddy, uh, Art Lynch, Professor Art Lynch. He can be reached at www.artlynch.org. There are a few other people I'd like to thank. One is Michael Kripchak. is an actor, writer, director based in Los Angeles, California. He's acted in more than 20 films, music videos, television pilots, and web series. Uh, you can catch him on the Internet Movie Database if you want to look them up. We also had uh, Grayson Lewis. Uh, Grayson Lewis resides in Los Angeles, California. He is the founding member of the Secondhand Smoke Comedy Theater Troupe uh, based in Burbank. If you're interested in what kind of work they can do, just uh, check them out on YouTube. They are hilarious. And Michelle Stratton has gone back to school. Hey, Michelle, and I hope everything is going well. She is studying acting and is, av- is available for parts if they're offered. She has uh, performed some interesting characters, everything from a surfer girl to Julia Antonia to a woman who happens to find a merman washed up upon the beach. And I would like to do one final shout-out to Cody Garcia, the eloquent Cody Garcia, who told us about film editing and the art of the story. According to his Facebook page, he is into another project, and we wish him luck. This concludes another episode of Ancient Rome Refocused. Please go to the blog at http colon backslash backslash ancientromerefocused.org. Just remember, Ancient Rome Refocused is one word.